welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. For a successful convention. Every job is an important cog to this wheel. When we announced that San Antonio was selected to host the Winter 2018 Convention, convention We immediately heard from our next speaker, what can I do to help? I learned early on in sobriety that I couldn't get recovery by asking, why me? I had to ask, what can I do? In Bill Wilson's story in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous on page 14, it says, While I lay in the hospital, the thought came that there were thousands of hopeless, I'm going to change it to Essanons, Essanons who might be glad to have what what has been so freely given to me. Perhaps I could help some of them. They, in turn, might work with others. My friend had emphasized the absolute necessity of demonstrating these principles in all my affairs. Particularly was it imperative to work with others as they had worked with me. For faith without works is dead. <coughs> in Bill Wilson's story in AA Big Book, I'll get it out, um, Julie practices this program in all of her affairs, just like we read about Bill Wilson. She's like the little Energizer bunny. She's full of spunk, always ready to help. She was our volunteer coordinator and worked long distance side by side with the San Antonio Fellowship. She was a major cog in our convention wheel. She loves the Essanon program and is already focusing on strengthening the Dallas Essanon Fellowship. She practices these principles in all of her affairs. And her two sons are two of the 15, I might say, 15 Essateens. <laughs> who are attending this weekend. So she practices it in her family as well. I am very anxious to hear her story. Please welcome Julie. Thank you, Marianne. Thank you, Melissa. And thank you for all the committee. 
um, for inviting me. It's been such an honor and privilege to be here. Um, it's truly um, enhanced my recovery in every way. Um, you know, when I first came into the program, my sponsors always told me recovery involves service. Um, it's one of the pinnacles of our recovery. Of, of one of the pinnacles of um, recovery is service. And coming in, I didn't really understand that because it was all about me. You know, how was I going to get out of this? And um, I didn't understand that. But at the very beginning, she says service was the key, and I truly be- believe that still today. Um, Will, you did an awesome job, and I am. <laughs> and it's it's frightening going after you. So um, if you see me shaking, it's because I'm going after him. <laughs> um, and thank you, San Antonio. You all did an awesome job, and um, it's it's been awesome convention so far, and I am so privileged to be a part of that. I love the SNON program, and I am a grateful SNON member. Um, you know, it's it's funny that the essays come up here and they say, oh, our sobriety date is so-and-so. And, and I'm thinking, God, what is my sobriety date? You know, I have these crazy obsessive thoughts every five minutes. I don't know what my sobriety date is. Is it like two minutes ago? I have these controlling obsessive thoughts. You know, um, oh, there goes one again, you know. Um, so I don't really know. Um, but I came into the program four years ago. Um, a little bit about um, myself and my family of origin. I love the fact that this is an international convention because I am really, um, I, come from Viet- I come from Vietnam. I'm Vietnamese. Even though I don't look it, um, a part of my past is that um, I am Vietnamese. Um, I am adopted into a Vietnamese family. I was born in Vietnam, and um, my dad, uh, who was a I don't want to call him a sex addict, but uh, what I perceive and believe to be a sex addict in every way. Um, he was, um, you know, he was basically what you would call a genius by every definition. Um, he graduated from college at 16 and um, was then on the bench at 26. Uh, I'm talking one of the Supreme Court justices of Vietnam on bench. So that was kind of a high bar to set for someone like myself. Um, he then married the Grace Kelly of Vietnam. Um, you know, so there was that standard there. They had 10 kids among them. So my adoption was not exactly for the purpose of, oh, let's have another child, you know. It was really because, well, they had enough money, and after the 10 cars, um, there was not much else they needed to buy other than a Amerasian child because they needed to um, have something else to buy. And there was not much else, you know, after the, you know, the 10th car. So that's what they decided to do. And I was really... um, an adoption made out of a publicity stunt um, that they had. They were very well known in Vietnam. Um, they had the money, the privilege, and we were very, very well off. Um, they had a very functional marriage. Um, and my dad often lived in another household, and my mom did the um, functional thing. She was a socialite. Um, so that's what they did. And all of my brothers and sisters all went to the U.S. for education. Now, um, they're all Vietnamese. I'm half. My adopted, uh, my biological father is American of some sort. 
and my biological mother is Vietnamese. I don't know who they are, but uh, that's what I was told. My adoptive father speaks four languages fluently. My adopted mother, though she did never, she never had a college education, speaks three. My brothers and sisters speaks three fluently. I speak two, so obviously I was quite a disappointment. Um, Um, you know, we have a lot of slogans in Esthanon, you know, let go, let God, one day at a time, keep it simple. You know, we, you're familiar with that. In my family, there were other slogans, you know. Um, one of them that I grew up was, don't complain, you know. Um, complaining meant failure, so we couldn't complain. Um, you know, I remember one time I was playing tennis, and um, and it was super hot outside. I was in Las Vegas, and the, the weather got up to be like maybe 110. And um, and I remember just sweating, and my dad would say, "Just suck it up," you know. It's you know, and I didn't have anything to drink, and and he would just say, "Keep practicing until you just you know just die." And I just remember I just have to keep practicing in hours and hours. And that was just the way how our family functioned. It was just, um, you just suck it up. Um, and that was one of the slogans I learned in my family was, don't complain. Um, you know, we don't feel, don't talk. Um, feelings were kind of a, um, a luxury items. You know, we just didn't do that much. And definitely don't solve problems, you know, another thing. We just never solve the problem. Uh, we shove things under the rug. Um, and don't be who you really are. Um, be good, be right, and be strong, and be perfect. Um, so that's what I learned growing up in this family. Most of my brothers and sisters, um, being the Asian child that they were, you know, a lot of you know Asians, uh, grew up at least with one Asian in your class probably. Now, you take that Asian and you put that brain on steroids. That was my brother and sisters. You know, we're not talking about, um, you know, the mediocre schools. We're talking about Harvard and Yale. And and here I am coming from just the average school. So that was quite the disappointment for them. Um, But that was okay because I was never really the family, you know, the child of theirs to begin with. So they always kind of justify that. But, um, you know, feelings, like I said, were never something that was accepted for them. You know, it was to outdo you, outdo the neighbors, outdo this and outdo that. Um, you know, so I remember when my sister passed away, uh, and um, she was murdered, actually. And I remember being told as a child, oh, well, that was something that we just don't talk about anymore, just don't feel it was probably, you know, a good thing that she died. Um, So I thought that was really odd, you know, how you just didn't feel that, and no one really felt anything. No one mourned, no one felt it was just something that happened. So I, I grew up feeling, you know, well, feelings were a bad thing, so I learned how to stuff my feelings. Um, another thing that I learned um, in my family was let's pretend, and I learned that pretty well. Um, you know, uh, you know, we didn't we, we we pretended to be the perfect family. In the outside, we were the perfect family. 
But in the inside, no one talked to anybody. No one really, we never communicated. My dad always had the authority on every situation. Um, my mom would dress me up as a child in these beautiful outfits. And she would take me around and parade me around, and I would be told to sit perfectly as a child. And if I dared to even dress or mess up my dress in any way, I would surely know about it afterwards. She would take her nails and pinch it so hard on my arm that it would bleed. And again, but on the outside, we were perfect. And I would never complain because that was one of the things that I learned was not to complain. And um, and then the pictures were ta- be taken, and you know on the outside we were perfect, um, and that was what I learned. Um, there was also a lot of you know gaslighting going on. Um, we were told that you know when somebody asked how the family was, we were just told that you know things were great, things were fine. Um, my mom is the kind of person that you know if the house was burning down. She would say, well, it's a bit tad hot in here, but I'm fine, you know, I'm perfectly fine. And that's kind of how I learned growing up as well, that I never really knew how to really express the urgency of things or um, that things were not fine. And um, I, I really took that into my marriage. And going into college, I was, I accepted a lot of really, unacceptable behavior, not just from, you know, uh, my husband or anybody, but from everybody, my, my employers, my friends, um, everybody that was around me, I, um, I accepted because I didn't know that there were boundaries. I was never taught that as a child. I didn't know what a boundary was other than Mexico and United States and Canada. If you ask, it was like boundaries. Well, I know what that is. Those are the border states, obviously. Um, so that was what I found, and um, well, when I grew up, um, you know, I was a child of the 80s. Can I get a glass of water? Sorry. Um. When I grew up in the 80s, I was a big fan of Tom Cruise. And, uh, well, we were living in San Diego at the time. And Tom, you know, there was a Top Gun school in San Diego. And, um, you know, and I just loved that movie. And I wanted to marry Tom Cruise. And, um, or someone similar to that. And, well... Um, you know, the school that I was going to, they had an officer candidate school. And uh, when I met my husband, he had the outfit on. Well, coming from the family that I came from, you know, I learned the image was everything. And my husband, or my, my to-be husband, had the glitz, right? He had the officer hat that was shiny and the white uniform that was really hot looking. And I fell over head over heels for that look. And on top of that, he had the right school. So I didn't care about the fact that he was an addict. And all the bells were going off, and I didn't care. All those things, like my mom taught me, you know, oh, it's hot in here, but 
It's fine. I didn't care about any of those things because I learned growing up that those things were, I can sweep them underneath the rug. Um, well, Tom Cruise really turned out to be more like Ted Cruz, you know? <laughs> but, um, but I didn't complain. I, I, I didn't complain. And um, as, uh, as, the, as the addiction progressed, I still didn't complain because I didn't know that things were bad. I had no idea. Um, you know, and even when the signals and, and the red flags grew, you know, showed up, I just stuck my head in the sand. And, um, and denial was full-blown in my household. And I took a lot of the, the, my frustrations and my anger out of my kids. And what that looked like really was, you know, I took on more and more activities. I pretend a lot. And what that looked like for me was that I took on more responsibilities at school. You know, I was very involved in my kids' school. I took over, you know, um, my son's schooling, in fact. You know, I was in charge of most of his school. And, no, I did most of his schoolwork. And, um, I, you know, when he was in the pre-K, I... I did his college, you know, application, you know. Um, I wanted to make sure he was going to get into the right college. And I made sure that, you know, we were set for a college at age five. And um, I wanted, you know, and I joined the PTA. Doesn't everybody do that? Guess not. Um, I, I did a lot of things that were unhealthy. And my son took a toll of that. He spiraled down in a deep depression and he hated me, um, but I didn't see that. I took him to counselors after counselors, um, but I kept pushing and pushing. He was involved in tennis, and if there was a tennis coach that um, that I knew that was you know the best out there or a tutor that was the best out there, I would pursue it because I wanted the best for him. Whether he wanted it or not was irrelevant, you know, because I wanted the best for him. Success was everything to me because that was I was taught. Um, and I didn't really like you. I didn't trust you. And I certainly didn't care if you liked me. I just wanted to outdo you because, again, that was what I was taught. Um, I never allowed, you know, my kids to complain because I wasn't allowed to complain. And that was, again, how I was taught. Um, when things really fell apart for me was in um, 2013 when my husband's addiction kind of came to the surface. But again, I was in full denial, and of course, the obsessive controlling Julie came out. And what did I do next? I said, I will fix this. No problem. I went to every therapist, I mean every therapist in DFW from Denton to Grand Prairie, you know, um, Rockwell to Fort Worth, um, looking for a therapist, saying, can you fix him? He's the problem child. Uh, I need someone to fix him. Well, after about 50 or so, they all said, no, ma'am, uh, we can't help you. Um, and I couldn't understand why. And when they said, well, you need help, I would fire them because they didn't understand the problem. You know, they didn't understand the language or something. Um, and finally, it took the, 
one of the one of the last therapists that I went to. Um, at this time, my husband um, had agreed to take a polygraph test because I demanded it. And in the polygraph test, um, there was ten questions, and I had laid out ten questions. And I, as an attorney, I I gave him two bonus questions, easy questions, you know. And one of them was, "What is your name?" And do you love Julie? And out of ten, he passed two. And guess what those two were, right? <laughs> but he failed it. And the agreement was that if he failed it, he would be in treatment. Well, he went kicking and screaming. And one of the one of my biggest mistakes was putting him into treatment when he did not want to, nor was he ready to go. But I wifed ordered him into treatment. And that was my biggest mistake. And from there, things got much worse. Um, in treatment, I remember on Thanksgiving, I took the kids up there in front of about 20 people. He took his wedding ring off and threw it at me from across the room and says, I hate you. Um, about a week later, and treatment is not cheap, y'all. A week later, I lost my job. And he wasn't working. We had a mortgage. Not only that, um, we were renovating our house with no money. I wasn't working. He's not working. I had no way to pay for any of this. And my kids hate me at this time. My boys were not talking to me. They blamed me for everything. I didn't know what to do. And again, keeping the image that I had, no one was, no one knew what was going on inside of me. So I, dropped my boys off, and decided this was it. I was done. I drove home, and I thought, I have three hours to myself before, you know, the next event, whatever that was. I was going to take my life. My son had a lot of um, medicine, so I poured it all out on a bowl. I, went, I walked over to the water. About five to ten minutes, a doorbell rings. And as it turns out, it was one of our old neighbors from Flower Mound. And he's ringing the doorbell. And I'm planning this whole thing out. And he's ringing the doorbell. And he's going, Julie, are you there? And I'm going, oh, my God, I can't even get this right. Jeez. And he's like, I can see you. (laughs) And I'm going, I can't even do this right. And he's like, I see your car. You must be home. And, of course, by the time that he said that, I'm like, fine, I'll open the door for you. So I open the door, and he comes in, and I let him in. And, of course, I can only tell him that, you know, my husband is in treatment, and I can't pay for certain things. I didn't tell him everything. You know, I didn't tell him that my life was miserable and and that... um, I lost my job because that was too much shame. Um, and, uh, you know, things spiraled from there. And he said, well, you know, have you thought about going to therapy? And I said, well, I, I'm going to go. I'm going to go to therapy. So I decided to go to this therapist. And, the, you know, I called the therapist and this last therapist that I went to. Um, as an attorney, I practiced because it was the, the last one, right? It was like the very last guy. I thought, I'm going to prep this time. He's not going to turn me down. 
So I did my opening and my closing and my exhibits. <laughs> and I knew it was 50 minutes, so I had to practice and I had to get it timed properly. And so I did my exhibits and he says, thank you. And he gives me, and he gives me the check, the bill. And he says, thank you. I can't see you though until you go to six Essanon meetings. I said, what? Give me another session. I know I, I can do this better. I, I know I can because you didn't hear me. He is the trouble child. And, um, he says, I said, well, what do I do? And he says, I don't know, ma'am, but you can't come back here. And so I started going to the meetings, and my life turned around. And since then, I got myself a sponsor. And with the sponsor, I learned several things. I learned that I was worth it through you all. I learned the steps, and I learned how to balance my life and my boundaries. I learned to keep it simple. I learned that I can be honest with myself and with you. I learned how to be honest with my husband, my children. We started having family conscious meetings and miracles started to happen. My kids are in the program of their own. My son would say things to me like, Mom, have you been to a meeting? And we know who your sponsor is. <laughs> my husband is home now. After three years of treatment and in transitional living, he's living at home and we're starting to rebuild our marriage again. So the program does work. And I know who I am now, and I can trust my judgment and trust myself. And the most important thing is, I want to wish you all a prayer, a prayer that was given to me when I first started the program. And I thought this prayer was the most ridiculous prayer at first, but it really touched me, so I'd like to give it to you. I do not wish you joy without sorrow nor endless days without the healing dark, nor brilliant sun without the restful shadow, nor tides that never turn against your bark. I wish you love, strength, faith, and wisdom, goods, gold enough to help some needy one. I wish you song, but also blessed silent, and God's sweet peace when every day is done. Thank you for being a part of my recovery. to thank you for listening to this episode of the daily reprieve the best source for experience strength and hope for sa members please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes please show your support by donating to the daily reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking donate now Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.